and I asked one of the guys about his time on that submarine and he told me that he had been to Murmansk with that submarine. <laughs> so I, I'd never heard about that. So I asked him, is that something you're allowed to talk about? Well, I don't know. I just tell it everyone is visiting the submarine. <laughs> this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. During the Cold War, six Dutch submarines secretly gathered intelligence about the Soviet Navy. Only a handful of people outside the Royal Netherlands Navy were aware of these operations, and they were not part of NATO operations. Thanks to our latest supporters, Victor Osprey, Joe Collins, Eric Tielander and Andrew Tyler, who are helping us financially for the price of a cup of coffee or two a month to cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. They will shortly be the proud owners of a Cold War Conversations coaster. Don't you want one too? Just go to patreon.com slash coldwarpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldwarpod. For the first time in Deepest Secrecy describes these top secret deployments in detail. On the basis of interviews and archival research, Jamie Caraman reveals how Dutch submarines followed, photographed and listened to Soviet ships unnoticed from the freezing Arctic Ocean to the shallow waters near Egypt. We welcome Jamie Caraman to Cold War Conversations. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jamie, you've served in the, um, in, in the Navy. Is that where your sort of interest in this subject has, has come from? Well, the interest in the subject came from a visit uh, to the Navy days, the Dutch Navy days in 1987. Um, and 10 years later, I joined uh, the Royal Netherlands Navy. Um, but the interest in the subject about submarines that started when I was uh, for um, a report in the, with a Dutch uh, submarine uh, during uh, the Dutch uh, submarine uh, command, commanding officer qualifying course. Um, and that was in uh, in Scotland on the Clyde. Uh, really interesting. And when we flew back with the, the commanding officer of the submarine service, we had a, a technical uh, failure with our uh, airplane where we are still in, the, in Glasgow Airport, and we had to delay with a delay of seven hours. So we could talk about a lot of different things, uh, and uh, and also about uh, his Cold War uh, adventures. A bit, and I asked him, uh, "Is it possible to write already some books or, or articles about that time?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Sure, yeah, that that's all. Uh, it's all in uh, declassified now." But that wasn't. <laughs> so it was somewhat of a challenge then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll get onto that in in a moment. Um, now, your book starts in 1968. What what was the Royal Netherlands Navy submarine service up to in the early Cold War years and and prior to that point? Well, um, the, the the submarine service uh, suffered great loss, of course, during the Second World War, and um, there was the, the submarine service was on on paper that survived, but there was almost nothing left. So um, they got some uh, uh, submarines from the UK and from the US, 
and uh, try to to recover from that time. Uh, and in the meantime, there were some uh, a lot of uh, difficulties with uh, the Dutch colonies in the east, in the, the Dutch East Indies. And um, but the, the, I think only in the late fifties or so, Dutch submarines in, were involved in that for for quite a short time. Um, after that episode was closed, the Dutch Navy focused more and more on the on NATO and, and the North Atlantic. Uh, and in that time, in the nineteen sixty, the new Dutch uh, the designed and Dutch built submarine class. Three cylinders, um, joint service. So that was with a new submarine, uh, with the new, well, it was more designed like the, what the Dutch Navy wanted. Um, they started a new period. Right. And, the, and that's the submarine that I, the type that I went and saw yesterday, the Ton, Tonane. Tonane. Yeah. I knew I was going to get that wrong. Um, the Tonane that's at the um, Navy Museum at Den Helder, yeah. um, which was a, a fascinating uh, visit. But uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about that later as well. I think one of the interest, things that interested me from your story being British was the close relationship with the British Royal Navy. How did that come about? Well, it started in the Second World War because before that, that was, there was, uh, especially on... on uh, industry level, there was a close cooperation with German industry. Uh, but in the Second World War, obviously, uh, the Dutch Navy, uh, a part of it was based in the, in the, in the UK. Um, also, uh, the submarines, the Dutch submarines were, they joined the, 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 the Royal Navy. Right. So, so when Holland was invaded, they, they came over to, uh, Britain yeah. to, with uh, their submarines. So some of the submarines were, just taken from the shipyards, there were uh, some of them. I think the O twenty four didn't even have a trial, sea trial. So wow. that was the first time they had to, to, to when they went to sea. They, they there was the real thing immediately, and they had to go to uh, to the UK, uh, and then they were they became part of the Supreme Flotilla in uh, most of them in in Scotland. Uh, so that that was where that began, and a lot of uh, all the, the commanding officers they did the the, the qualifying uh, course for the uh, commanding officer qualifying course for the Royal Navy. Uh, so that's that's where that started. Okay, and the, the the qualifying course is is sort of got a nickname to it, hasn't it? It's called the Perisher. Perisher, yes. Course. Can you just give a little bit more about that course? Um, yeah, well, that's, that started, uh, a bit earlier in the, in the Royal Navy because they, they wanted to have, uh, better qualified commanding officers and the, the Dutch Navy didn't have that course. So when they came over to the UK, they got familiar with that course. And that is, uh, when you're on the commanding officer of a diesel electric su- submarine, especially in that time. You're the only one who gets all the information. You have to handle all this information. You have to make the decision. You're the only one who's looking through the periscope. Um, so you need someone who is, who is trained really well. And not only to, to know how to fight with a submarine, but also how to handle your, the people in, your, in the control room and, and all the, all the data getting in. Um, 
So and that that course is is quite familiar because it's it's really hard, especially the the final phase of it when um, if you make one mistake you get then then uh, you you that's it you're out you're you? out All yeah right. and it's not that when you're out it's when it's told to you then you get a, a a boat will be arranged and you get off the submarine. Wow, it's so that that's, final. It's the end of the career, end of your submarine career because right. you can't if you. Uh, you failed that exam. You're not uh, allowed anymore on, uh, t- to be a commanding officer on a submarine. So that that's really uh, hard because um, those guys have been in the submarine service for most of the time for around ten years, and that is everything uh, in that ten years is is leading up to that qualifying course, of course, because the. Uh, uh, that is what that, that's what they want eventually. So it's really high stakes yeah. that you you yeah. come to that. Wow! And and there's more detail in the book. I'm not. We we don't want to reveal everything, but uh, Jamie does go into a little bit more detail as to what that course consists of. Yeah, and that course was is a, is a part, of course, of the this cooperation between the UK and uh, the Netherlands. Um, and I think from that time on until now, you see that. Also in the Dutch submarine service, there is a, a link between the, the uh, with UK submarine service. Yeah. So, so we've forgiven you over Chatham then. Of, yeah. When was that? Sixteen something or other? Yeah, sixteen sixty-five. Yeah, famous Dutch victory over the Royal Navy, where they sailed up the um, the River Medway and uh, sank most of our fleet and took one boat back with them, I think, at, at, at Chatham. But anyway. We're here to talk about Cold War, not 1600s. Um, so uh, I, under, I understand also that, that some of the um, Dutch submarines were deployed with British squadrons as well, um, like at, at bases like Faz Lane. Can yeah. you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there was in the, in the 70s, uh, there was a close cooperation uh, with, the, with the Royal Navy, and that was because the, the Dutch Submarine service is obviously based in Den Helder, uh, but there the the North Sea in that part is too shallow. So every time they they had to go to their uh, station, uh, that was that was in the North Atlantic. They had to transit there for a few for a day or two. And uh, when you're based in Fast Lane, uh, with a big submarine base with all those facilities, uh, the idea was that was much. Closer, much better because it's closer to the to your patrol area. Uh, but it's, it's also good to to get more familiar with the cooperation with other submarines. And it was, I think, um, maybe ten years or so that that the Dutch submarines were were that closely cooperating with uh, with the Royal Navy submarines. And uh, there was. For one submarine at the time, Dutch submarine at the time, that was the Vaseline was uh, its home base. Right, right, okay, okay, and because Vaseline's famous for the nuclear submarines, but we, it's worth just noting here that the Dutch submarines we're talking about are diesel electric um, submarines, so do need uh, snorkeling, I think, to yeah. keep going. Yeah, keep going. I mean, that's not a great term, but anyway, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, that's true. Uh, these are electric submarines that the Dutch tried to, to, to obtain, uh, nuclear submarines as well in the, in the 60s, in the 70s, first uh, with, uh, with the Americans and after that failed with the French. But in the end, it's, I think it's better 
for the Dutch Navy uh, to have the diesel electric submarines, especially because Britain got rid of it of them uh, in the 90s. Uh, after the the Royal Navy turned to nuclear only submarines, um, the Dutch took over the the Paris Accords uh, that started in uh, 1994. Uh, so the Dutch uh, have now now have the the commanding officer qualifying course that's the submarine commanding officer the submarine commanding course um, that since 1994 so also Australian uh, submariners and uh, submariners from Singapore Chile or everywhere they go to Den Helder for their uh, uh, commanding officer course oh okay I didn't I I hadn't realized um that the Dutch had, had taken over the course, but obviously it makes sense as there's nobody else using. I mean, of uh, so the British and the Americans don't use diesel electric at all. They're all yeah. nuclear. Yeah, nuclear. And power. the French as well, right? And there's also another another very important part in my book in in that time frame from '68 to to the end of the Cold War. Mm. Um, that a lot of uh, information is needed from the, the Soviet fleet and they that then a lot of um, um, then a lot of people realize that that's only or maybe better uh, to use sub- these electric submarines so um, but maybe you wanted the question yeah no not not later? necessarily I mean I, I'm I'm interested to know the advantages of diesel electric over nuclear because I would have thought nuclear would be better because they'd be quieter, but that's me probably well, no. not understanding the technicalities. Well, during the Cold War, the, the nuclear submarines were not quieter than these diesel electric submarines. You have, when you have a, a nuclear submarine, you have a lot of pumps uh, and a lot of and there's a lot of noise in the submarine. Um, and when you have a diesel, diesel electric submarine that running, that's running on batteries, not snorkeling, but when it's on batteries, and mm. uh, it's really quiet. Um, in that time, after the Second World War, uh, the, the Germans, they had obviously a really uh, big uh, submarine fleet, but then after that Second World War, they are not allowed to, to build larger submarines, so only very small submarines designed for the Baltic, the Baltic Sea. So that meant that um, the Germans, the Norwegians, and the Swedes have their own submarines for the coastal waters, the Baltic or the coastal waters in the in the North Atlantic. Um, well, the French were in that time frame a bit out of NATO. And uh, so, yeah, the, the UK, obviously, with the their uh, Oberon class, Mm-hmm. submarines uh, for a large part in the during the Cold War and um, and in the Mediterranean there were a lot of other nations with their submarines but most of them were for coastal operations uh, when it appeared that the, the Soviets had anchorages in the Mediterranean uh, for example near, uh, near Egypt and uh, Libya and uh, Tunisia um, then it was very clear that you you need submarines that can travel quite a, a, some distance um, because there were no NATO ports next to them, of course, in the Mediterranean, but not in Egypt. 
so you need something that can travel some distance, can stay there for a longer time, and also can visit the anchorage right. in a very shallow area. Right. Uh, and also you need a, a submarine that's big enough to accommodate people who can uh, handle all the data, data that's coming in and analyze okay. it. Okay, okay. Let, let's come to the, the missions then in more detail because I think we're, we're now getting into that area. So the Royal Netherlands Navy mission was to gather intelligence on the Soviets. What, what intelligence were they trying to get hold of? A lot of intelligence because um, a submarine can get a lot of uh, information about the ships, uh, um, and that is about the Soviet about the Soviet fleet. Um, there are a lot of, of course, the the submarines have a lot of sensors. They can uh, detect, or record acoustic signature, acoustic noise. Um, they can also have a look through the periscope and record it with a videotape. It was uh, used, I think, um, the first time I, I read about that was in the, during a patrol in the, in the early seventies. Um, they can record the, the uh, data that's emitted by the signals emitted by radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point is that the submarine can do that for a long time and gather all, all this this information simultaneously so not only a bit uh, acoustic signature uh, acoustic noise but also uh, the, the 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 radar image and the, the image of the of the of the ships and they can you can combine it so you have a complete fingerprint of this of this ship because every radar every radar and every uh, ship has its own uh, signature because you have a lot of pumps and uh, um, uh, generators mm. and they emit generally the same noise but if you if you analyze that then you see that you have a lot of different uh, um, uh, things in it so you could identify the type of submarine yeah. by well not only the type that's the interesting thing the type but also, if you're if you're analyzing really well, you can even an- analyze the exact what is the, the, the you can you can differentiate the exact submarine or ship. Because I mean, I've I've heard of stories where they can tell whether one of the cylinders is cracked or something, or yeah. and it, it it is that level of detail, is it? Yeah. So Jonesy on Hunt for Red October, that uh, is is quite well based on facts then. Um, yeah, but that's what they did was, um, uh, they, they used a, a, a special device as a frequency analyzing sonar. And, um, so that was not on, on, on just by hearing it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I, c- I couldn't avoid Hunt for Red October, one of my favorite films, what? but okay. So, um, so they're trying to take photographs of Soviet ships. They're um, listening to the sound and radar, radio waves emitted from from these ships. I think I I read that they that the the Russians were potentially quite clever. I guess this could have happened by accident, but they were using the same engines in their trawlers that they used in some of the submarines. Yeah, 
and so the 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 acoustic signature could be quite similar there yeah that's true but you have a different uh, the acoustic signature of that engine is the same but then you have all the noise emitted noise by the, the machinery that that's not um on the sound absorbing material and uh, uh, you have a different screw so that that's a different propeller yeah yeah so is it possible to detect any submarine or can a submarine actually go completely silent and not be heard at all you mean in that time frame in in, in that general? time frame yes um of course when the submarine is um uh, it depends of course on how your sonar or how how good your sensors are yeah what the the the, the how good um, the, your team is your mm. sonar operators are um and when a submarine is operated very well and it's 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 also when you're lucky and it sits uh, in an um, um below the temperature layer then it's really hard to detect the submarine right or maybe, for example, in the Baltic Sea, that it's quite common to to bottom the submarine on the on the seabed, right? Turn off all the uh, machinery, yeah. And then it's really quiet. Okay. The the reason I ask is I interviewed a Canadian anti-submarine warfare uh, specialist who worked with the Royal Canadian Air Force, and he reckoned that the 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 British Polaris and Trident submarines they could detect them. They knew where they were despite the fact that the, the British government say they're completely invisible, and I'm just trying to work out. I don't know about that. Uh, there, there were nuclear submarines, of course. Um, and I can imagine that when you have when you have a nuclear submarine and uh, the, an MPA is dropping sonar buoys uh, in that time frame, that maybe you can, you can hear them. Um, but it depends, depends on... On, like I said, on the all the, the all the circumstances of yeah. the the capability, the operator, the temperature of the seawater, loads of other variables. By the sound of it, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, can we talk about just a few of the missions, just to give listeners a flavour of what you've got in your your book, because it is it is packed with many missions. But I think one one of the ones that I quite like was the. Um, the uh, Russian trawler that was off Malin Head that was, uh, I think it's called an AGI, which is Auxiliary General Intelligence. Intelligence. Yeah. Hey, you see, I've, I've done notes as well here. Now, th- this one was a really ad- ad- amusing story because they, uh, they were apparently monitoring this trawler and they detected that it was moving closer to the British coast every time there was a football match on so that they could watch it on, on TV. No. Yeah, that's one of the Dutch submarines uh, was operating in that area uh, in UK waters because it was based in the fast lane, and also, of course, the, the Royal Navy submarines were operating there. But whenever there was, uh, they needed the, the Dutch submarine that was uh, then that was sent to that patrol area, and that's a very famous uh, uh, the the Melon Head AGI. It's very famous in that time. Um, it was there to get uh, intelligence about uh, the, 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 
the Royal Navy SSBNs, the nuclear submarines with ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. and also the American ones. And But it was not only gathering intelligence, but it was also harassing them sometimes. Um, but they, 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 they liked football because uh, I spoke to one of the commanding officers that, that actually saw them watching football matches. Uh, what, through his periscope? Through his periscope. Brilliant. Yeah. There was a green light uh, lighting up in the in the in the crew area, and that's what you get when you're you're just there uh, a few a few minutes or seconds or a few hours watching uh, such a trawler with a uh, with an airplane or with another ship, uh, then you have only a, a, mom- a moment or a few uh, uh, snapshots mm. of, of their behavior. But when you're there. For days or some weeks, and you you know all the the routines, and eventually he, he knew exactly what time they had uh, they did the morning exercises and the, the, all the routines. The same uh, captain also told me that he was he, he did he did that the same in the in the Mediterranean, and he saw uh, the the crew, the Soviet crew, line up on that destroyer he was watching uh, that was in the Anchorage. Every hour at eight o'clock, and they all watched. They looked at the same time, at the same direction, of course. And then he passed with his periscope the other side, and he could take pictures. Brilliant. So he knew they were looking in the wrong direction. So well, he, 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 they were just lined up, right? And and yeah, he knew that he was he was not going to be detected. He was no. unlikely to be detected. Yeah, and that is what you also want to know. You want to know what is the behavior of of your of this. Uh, possible opponent, because when when you know that on ev- at twelve o'clock they they have uh, a new watch coming up, um, that's not what you're going to see because they are inside and in inside the control room or in inside the ops room. But you can you can uh, record that when you see the the change of the radar. Uh, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. When it's uh, emitting, there are some differences in the uh, references or the the frequencies, the frequencies or, or yeah. some other things, because that's what they do when you. That's that's what every radar operator does when he's there in in, in starting his watch. He's adjusting his seat, he's adjusting his earphones, and he's adjusting his uh, his radar. Yeah, and that's what you see. If you see that every every day at twelve o'clock. Do you know them? Okay, that's the moment that you uh, that they're not really ready for, ready for attack. Right, that is fascinating. 
fascinating stuff. Um, how secret were were these operations? They are still very secret. So why are we talking about them now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why are we talking about it now and why I wrote a book about it? Um, that is because some parts of it, a lot of... Uh, they, they're that that's really history. Mm-hmm. We're talking about submarines that they that don't exist anymore, or uh, part of a museum uh, tactics that they're in the history books, um, and some other things that are very that are very obvious. And, and we're talking about, and we we can talk about it because in the Dutch National Archives. Um, there were the captain's logs of all the Dutch submarines. And that was obviously a mistake. Um, but every submarine or every ship has a, a captain's log, ship's log. And uh, every six hour, the, the, the crew or the, one of the officers wrote down the, mm-hmm. all the, the things that happened with the, uh, with a submarine or uh, in that watch in the past six hours. So, um, but it was, there's known that it was open source. So they had, when it was closed 25 years later, it would be in the archives. So that was not, it was not allowed to write down, um, sensitive parts, sensitive uh, information. Um, but at that, at that time, it is really hard to, to know exactly what is still secret in 25, in 25 years. And so they wrote down what they thought it was, it was open and it was not that sensitive because they, they next to the, to that ship's log, they had the patrol report and that was the really secret stuff. So, uh, all the results of the, of the patrol, uh, what they did, the what exact. ships they encountered, and and sometimes they had the ship's log for some special uh, for a patrol, and then they used stamps and put on uh, secret or uh, NL eyes only. But when you do that on a on a document that is not secret, you can put on. Um, Many stamps you want, but it is still not secret. So after 25 years, it went as well to the National Archives. And when I started, I visited my, my, the book actually, the, the first thing I did was, of course, the, the, the talk with the commanding officer of Supreme Service in Glasgow, at mm. Glasgow Airport. Um, but I think one year later, I went to the Tonang, the Naval Museum. And with still with that that information in my head, and uh, I asked. Uh, it was it was uh, it was exactly the same the windy atmosphere, windy rainy day like you uh, had yesterday. Yeah, the joyous Dutch weather I had yesterday. Yeah, so it was there was no one at the museum. There was no one at the at the submarine except for the the, the the personnel working there. And and I asked one of the guys about his time on that submarine, and he told me that he had been. To Murmansk with that submarine, okay. <laughs> so I got really—I'd never heard about that. And um, so I asked him, "Is that something you're allowed to talk about?" Well, I don't know. 
I just tell it everyone is visiting the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then so that I'd time, call that open source then. <laughs> yeah. At that time, I thought, well, I have to write it. I have to write it down. I have to do something with it. So I started to interview with. Uh, I started to interview with one of the guys, uh, uh, one of the submarine veterans. And he told me about a lot of information about that, uh, about that, that time frame. Uh, but I, he couldn't remember a lot of details. So the next thing I did was I called to the, the history, the department of the, of the armed forces in mm-hmm. the Netherlands and I asked them, uh, where can I find those re- patrol, uh, patrol reports? Then they laughed, of course. Said, well, those are still very secret and you're not, we don't know even where they are. Even 30 years after they were, or more than 30 more. years. Than that, 50 than, years. Yeah. So, um, okay. And then the, the historians who spoke, they, they told me, go to the National Archives. There you will find the ship's logs. But there's nothing in it. But every historian was, was re- repeating that. And mm-hmm. if it's, everyone is saying there's nothing interesting in those ship's logs, then no one is, of course, having a look in it. And I was there for, for another reason at the National Archives, and I asked one of those ship's logs, and it was just looking in the, and suddenly I saw some s- short information, sort of snippets of, of a patrol. So then I decided to, um, digitize all the 150 uh, ship's logs, 50,000 pages. Uh, it took me one year to do that. Really? That yeah. quick? <laughs> yeah, I could, I could do, yeah, I was really trained after, after, to, 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 to do that really fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and it, it was, it was also really strange because, the part of the, the area when you can uh, look in all those um, in the archives mm-hmm. uh, that is for secret uh, material, and there's also uh, one guy of the, the, the national archives next to that table and is watching that you're not taking pictures and only you're only allowed to write something down. So the first time I went there with the with the ship's logs, I went to that table, and he sent me away. Because he said that's not a secret uh, document, so you have to go to the public part. And he said if you are having a camera, you can also take pictures of it. So I thought, well, if this is not secret, what is the information on that table? Yeah, yeah. And so, but that was a, that was a mistake because I, when I combined all this information with all the, the there were also crew lists in it. Um. And some, some ships like were there already for 25 years. So I am sure I was not the, the first one to see that. I, I'm for sure the, 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 the Russian embassy had their trainees started <laughs> <laughs> for years. So that, that was, um, okay. So I, I, I digitized that and I analyzed all the information and I, and I found 60, uh, patrols in that area. Right. Uh, but that is because it was open source. So that's one, that, that's one part. Uh, they accidentally, it was open source. And, uh, another thing is that the sub, the submariners, the Cold War submariners, uh, are not seen, 
as uh, veterans. They're not in the, in, in the Netherlands. They're not uh, recognized as veterans because they were not on an official mission. It was just the government says they were only on exercises. That is because these operations were so secret that they're not recognized. So, and that is in the beginning they accepted that, but now after all those uh, all, all those years, and uh, their 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 requests have been turned turned down many times. They're a little bit, um, and they're turning older, of course. Yeah. So a lot of guys said to me, "Okay, now I'm willing to talk about this because." Because we have to talk, we have to tell people what we did, and not only ex- having ex- doing exercises or just waiting mm. in port. But we did a lot of things that were really dangerous and really important. Um, and if we don't get a, a we're not getting a, a veteran status because they're not invited to the National Veteran Day. That's just shocking. Yeah, I'm. I'm well, yeah, that's really sad. That is sad. Yeah. I mean. When you read the book and you realize the dangers of of what they were actually doing, I mean they were as almost in combat or, yeah. you know that well they were in danger of being sunk by Soviet ships if they got too close or got in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah that's so that's that, yeah so that's why a lot of guys were really willing to tell uh, more details about it, and they also said that this is the first time and Telling this story to uh, someone who's not in the submarine service, even their wives or their and their kids, they didn't know about it. And so, their family, the first time they they heard about they read about it, it was in my book. And sometimes fifty years after the, that mission. Uh, and like you said, there was sometimes there were some times that it was, it was really dangerous. Mm. Uh, they did a lot of uh, underwater looks. Uh, Can you just define what yeah. an underwater look is? Okay, that's um, um, if a submarine wants to know more about the ship, you can obviously gather the information from uh, some distance. Mm-hmm. But a lot of sometimes you want to see the the the, the exact layout of the propeller and. Um, and the bottom of the, the ship. So the only thing, the only possible way to do that when you're when the, the, the ship is at sea is with the submarine to go underneath the, the ship or underneath the submarine. It's even more dangerous, but that, this was also done. Uh, and take a picture of film to complete on the side of that ship. And was that film taken through the periscope? Yeah. Or you can't really see where you're going in a submarine easily. Or is that you? Because I mean, this must be really precision work yeah. to try and not hit the target that you're trying to examine. Yeah. So you have to, you, you need an extremely well trained crew. You have to trim your boat, your submarine, really well. So it has to be uh, on the same depth constantly. Because if you the the, the distance between the, the the top of the periscope. And the, the the ship is maybe uh, two meters or so, wow. or sometimes it's five. Depends on the visibility in the in, of the water, but uh, sometimes it's t- even two meters. And if if the ship is only sailing for four knots, five knots, it's it's hard to get 
to, to keep the sovereign Because you need that sort of like neutral buoyancy yeah. to, to stop it rising yeah. too high or even going too low so you can't see anything. Yeah. Wow. Um, and were so there that, any any collisions? I mean, did, did they actually hit hit things? Not with the Dutch uh, Dutch submarines, no. No, there were no accidents. There was... Um, Good parachute training, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were some some accidents, but that was only and it was not during patrols, but it was uh, there were fires, of course, and uh, not on the uh, problems. But now, uh, no collisions with uh, with Soviet uh, ships. Right, right. And you you mentioned about the the operations in the Mediterranean and sort of what what were the Soviets up to in the in the Mediterranean. Well, the Mediterranean Sea is uh, very important for the for the Soviets. Um, they uh, there isn't they have no no port there, but they want to 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 have some influence there. So, and well, this this started a long time ago. I think in the in the nineteenth century, when. Um, uh, the, the the Russians wanted to go there, and they had to, to they had a lot of wars and difficulties with uh, with with Turkey about uh, a passage from the uh, Black Sea to the Mediterranean. But in the end, they want some influence, they want a lot of influence in the Mediterranean Sea. So um, they did a lot of a lot of things. For example, uh, uh, delivering weaponry to. Uh, yeah, so they were su- supporting a number of states yeah. in that area. Uh, and one of the other things is they wanted uh, ports. And for sometimes they were they had some access to it or they had, they had their own port, but then they had to leave. Uh, they also did try to have one in, uh, in uh, Albania uh, and then they, they had to leave after a couple of years. Uh but in the in the in the seventies and the eighties, they they were allowed to to stay and to have an anchorage near uh, Solom, um, that's on the border of Egypt and, and Libya, and the Gulf of uh, Hammamet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another different uh, anchorage, and there they they had they had their their floating base actually, so they they had you have of course you had in the north part of the Mediterranean. The NATO ports with the uh, NATO sixth fleet, uh, the, the 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 US sixth fleet, mm. and all the NATO uh, squadrons, um, and they had their own squadron in the Mediterranean, and with floating bases, so submarine uh, tenders and repair ships. So these were like large ships. supply ships that would just more diff- yeah. in this bay, yeah. and then supply. The submarines and and war warships yeah. um, that were in the area, yeah, and and the submarine could, um, was was tied next to was to to that submarine tender. The crew could uh, get on board the submarine tender, take some rest, and um, so that was the the, the main uh, reason why they had their anchorage, right? And that is an important thing because in the in the sixties and the seventies, the first part of the seventies, the main focus 
of the Dutch submarines was in the North Atlantic. But when you have an, a diesel-electric submarine uh, and, and, and you have to wait for a Soviet ship to pass by, and if you see that on your horizon, you can only sail for, uh, let's say, uh, 10 knots or so. Or uh, if you want to, to, to stay really quiet, you have to, to sail for five or six knots, then you're, you're never going to be, to be to get close to that, that ship. Um, so actually, there were mobile mines, uh, and that and you had to wait for hour, for for days and weeks to get lucky, and then one of the the, the ships to get to, to get close. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even it's it's easier for that sub that's these electric submarines to 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 go hunt for their opponents instead wait to wait for them. And when you, they, the, the Soviets had their anchorage, it's easier for, for the diesel electric submarines to get to, to go there and actually visit the, the anchorage. Right. And that is what happened. They, for, to take pictures and to, to gather all this information, sometimes they had to go through the anchorage. Um, and, and had to look out that they didn't got, hit by the, the the cables that were running down to the sea bottom. So they were right in the middle of the anchorage going through periscope up, presumably, or, or no. not taking photos? Well, one of the stories is um, it was in 83 with, uh, with the Dutch submarine that uh, the, the commanding officer had to take pictures of a Juliet-class submarine. And that was on the other side of the anchorage. So you had to go through the, the whole anchorage. But the, the visibility is, the, is very good in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So if you're on periscope depth, that's 17 meters for that submarine. Um, you can easily be seen. Even your periscope is down. If it's up, it's, it's much easier. There, there, there are a lot of guys, Soviets are smoking a cigarette or just smoking outside to do some maintenance. So that was really dangerous. He, he stayed on uh, 50 uh, meters because he he did some reconnaissance on, on the, the, the days before. So he knew exactly where all the ships were positioned, where the, the cables were running down, the anchor cables. Mm. And he listened because all those cables were making some noise. And he listened on the sonar and he, you're plotting that really well. You know where you have where the cable is, so uh, if there is a cable staying in, in the same direction, staying there when you are moving, then you know it's on collision course. So, mm-hmm. if all the cables are moving on your plot, then there is nothing uh, going on. Then that's safe. So that's what he did, and then at the right time, he went up to periscope depth, raised his periscope, took s- some pictures of the of the Juliet. And uh, went away. Wow! And is, is there any evidence the Soviets knew that this was going on or not? Um, no, there is no evidence because there were some. Um, every time there was a submarine there in that area, uh, of course, it was uh, the the whole area was monitored, and um, there were some. Incidents known that if you, if there was an MP an, an airplane flying close to the anchorage or a ship, the the Soviets 
radioed that to, to their headquarters and they changed sometimes their frequency of the radar, so turned off some systems. And that ha- didn't happen during that submarine, submarine operations. So you, of course, that does not mean that that was completely unknown, but it also means that what well, that was the conclusion that they uh, they were not detected at that moment. Okay, okay. Now it it sounds like there's possibly loads of other stories out there that you don't necessarily know about. Um, do you think those are likely to get re- released at some point? And is there going to be an in deepest secrecy two? I think there will there will be an in deepest secrecy two, yeah. Um, but I think I have the the most important stories uh, of Dutch Cold War submarine operations in this book. I've interviewed thirty guys, thirty former submariners. And uh, that did a lot of uh, uh, many missions because I had to, I had the crew list. I knew exactly who did the, most of the missions. So I picked out the right, um, uh, submariners. And, and uh, I don't think there is, there, there are still great stories to tell about that, uh, that time frame that I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but after that, time there was uh, sub- Dutch submarines were involved in 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 the in the during operation sharp guard nato sharp guard in the, in the after the, the Kosovo war and the the, the Yugoslavia crisis in that time frame they were also involved in that uh, in in the mediterranean right so so there are further stories to tell there a lot of stories yeah great be looking forward to that um now what surprised me was these missions were not technically part of nato operations no can you tell me why that would be because you, you'd imagine that that these should have been part of nato operations well the um, what does the submarines wanted to what, what, what why they were sent there to the soviets was to gather information and to store all this information in a database um but the the user of the database is, of course, the are the intelligence services, and um, because it was a Dutch submarine, it was not they they didn't want to share it immediately with all NATO members. Um, every the, the the intelligence services work like um, they have they they use to trade their information. And not share that immediately, especially in that time. Um, so that's why it were not NATO operations. And there was also one one thing I heard about that um, what the experiences about NATO was that it was not really that uh, um, sometimes there was some information that that leaked out. Yeah, it wasn't secure. No. The, the information that that's what i'd imagined is that obviously the wider you share information the more chance that your uh adversaries are going to uh find out about that yeah there, there was some example like um uh, when a submarine is sent to a uh, sailing uh, then they use a sub note and they they have to sail in this in the in the virtual box uh so everyone knows that in that area you're not uh, allowed with your submarine otherwise you have a collision and that's sub that's that that sub note uh, 
is transmitted through all NATO, some part of NATO. Um, one of the commanding officers uh, who had uh, was uh, co- uh, commanding officer of, of, of uh, a submarine in the seventies told me that when they got a subnote that they um, they were leaving Den Helder and going to the south, then there was always a trawler, an AGI on the south, and um, so what did what they did after that happened quite a few times. Uh, when they they went to the south and then they had to stop now that they were going to the to the Atlantic to uh, Madeira, but then they secretly went to the to the to, uh, straight to Gibraltar. So and then they never saw an AGI. So that means that that somehow the Soviets were reading those subnotes. Right. And that was a that so when you share it in a in a large community, then there are more risks that that leaks out, and you don't have something to trade. Yeah, yeah. And so the the Dutch were then trading this information for. Uh, I don't know, for to get stuff from NATO. No, not from NATO, but presumably with other NATO members. But this is the intelligence uh, part of this of the story. Yeah. So, so th- this is the stuff that, um, well, you can't really cover. No. Okay, we better leave it there then. Um, so. Um, we mentioned right at the start that uh, you've written a fictional book based on these um, submarine operations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I did some uh, thirty interviews or more with uh, with former submariners, and some interviews took two and a half hours. <clears throat> so there is a lot of there was a lot of information and a lot of stories, really interesting stories and. After a, um, I heard some of the stories. I, I thought, well, this is it would be great to use for for a book, a new a fiction book. And that book is uh, so so. It's based on on a few of those stories, but I I changed that, of course, a different time and a different uh, submarines. And um, this book is about um, a commanding officer who uh, is. Is a bit in 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 problem in a problem because there he had an incident in the year before, but uh, uh, he is on the only submarine operation which is operational at that time, with the with the, with the trained crew and the, the submarine is uh, is is okay. So he is sent out to do a, a, to go for another patrol in the north, um, but it's a bit the patrol is boring because there isn't. It's just a vast area, and there is nothing to hear. Um, and the crew has to to do to do some some things to, to uh, uh, for recreation. And one of the things is uh, the the ship's newspaper. Uh, and one of the guys who's uh, writing the ship's newspaper, um, he he wants to to. Um, um, to do to make it a great newspaper and to have some to get some credits and uh, to be successful and to be seen because he's new on that on that submarine, um, 
And when he sees, gets some, some, some news about Dutch frigates that are in, in Mediterranean and they are heading back to Den Helder, he changes that news and writes down the story about that they're not going to Den Helder, but to the Black Sea for a freedom of navigation operation. And, uh, while he's, he's covering that fake news story, obviously, and that things getting out of hand, uh, during that that operation and um well then uh, don't give it all away no. <laughs> it's getting really interesting yeah. okay okay well we'll be providing links to both the non-fiction book in deepest secrecy and also the fiction book which i think is called orca yeah well jamie thank you for um all, all of that. That's a, a great amount of information and will have certainly have whetted people's appetites to uh, read the book further because I can assure readers there is a load more um, interesting operational detail in the book. Um, now, normally with my author guests, we do have what I call a quick fire round, which is a few fun questions. Well, I hope you'll find these fun anyway, Jamie. <laughs> What is your favourite Cold War-themed or Cold War-era film? That is uh, A Hunt for Red October. <laughs> a man after my own heart. Okay, tell me why. Uh, because also because of the the music, the the whole the whole story, uh, the the characters. And and also uh, after I after I saw the the making of and all the how the crew prepared themselves to to do that role, and um, uh, the, the, yeah, mm-hmm. after that I was really uh, even more a fan. But, of that but you being a submarine expert must look at that film and say, no, they didn't do it like that, or that's not possible, or things like that. Surely. No. Yeah, that's true, of course, but it's it's fiction, and uh, that's that's what you get when you you have to tell the, that complete story in let's say two hours or so. Yeah, and 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 reach a big audience. Uh, of course, you have you have it. It won't be a, that realistic. It, it is not a documentary. No, it it is good entertainment. Yeah. If you can excuse Sean Connery's attempt at <laughs> Russian. If you were making a film about the Cold War, what piece of music would be the soundtrack? Well, the the soundtrack of the Hunt for October is great. Yeah, and the, the soundtrack of Crimson Tide is is great. As Another well. great it's, submarine movie. Yeah, I'd, yeah, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and the soundtrack by Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Yeah, that that's really terrific. Yeah. I haven't watched that in a while actually. I'll have to dig that that one out. That is a that is a good film. Have you ever seen the film The Bedford Incident with Richard Widmark? Black and white Cold War movie with a frigate chasing a Russian submarine. No, I, uh, I recommend that. Okay. It's good. It's good. It's set early Cold War. It's sort of like fifties, early sixties. Um but it pops up on the T V every once in a while. Bedford Incident. And I recommend that to listeners as well. Um, so my next question would be, if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War, living or dead, to uh, have a few drinks with, 
Who would they be and what questions would you ask? It doesn't have to be three. It could be two. It could be one. Well, um, when I did the, uh, the research for my book, I uh really happy and really lucky that a lot of important former submariners um, were still alive and I could interview them. And so I had really great interviews, but there's only one uh, who was uh, who passed away uh, a few years before I started with the research. And he had, he was part of the, he was commanding officer of the submarine service when they started with the first patrol. Um, and it, it's really too bad that because they're, 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 they were, those were so secret, there's no, there are no documents um, still. And so he was the one in the end who, who knew what, what was arranged, what was, what the, the details was, where they, the, the commanding officers get. And, um, so that that guy, I would have, yeah, uh, asked a lot of questions. So there are stories from the early Cold War that are just completely unknown and undocumented. Then is that the period you're talking about? There, yeah. Well, they're not completely unknown because I, I, there's still some submariners who were in that who, who were on, for example, on that submarine in that in the first mission. But uh, there were most of them were junior junior submariners or uh, junior officers at the time, or um, uh, or even the commanding officer of that submarine doesn't know exactly what what happened before that before he got that 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 order to go to sail there and to do that operation. Right. So so this guy that you were talking about would have known the whole picture. Yeah. Wow. Well, this there might be an archive somewhere that you've not necessarily laid your hands on hopefully yeah now i think i probably know the answer to this one but are there books or a book or websites that you would particularly recommend for anyone interested in cold war submarine operations now obviously there's your own esteemed <laughs> publications but but what else is there out there well um the first book i read about this topic was uh, blind man's bluff and really great classic book on this uh, topic. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Another book was um, published, I think, 2015, The Silent Deep by Peter Hennessy and James Jinks. Um, really great, great book. A lot of uh, stories, and, and I used it uh, quite a few times for my uh, for my research. Right, and that's Royal Navy-focused, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's the whole... The history of the Royal Navy submarine service from 1945 until... Um, it's quite a hefty tone. Um, Jamie's got it here on his uh, kitchen table. That looks a good one. I'll have to add that to my birthday list. Yeah. Well, it's 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 really... And it, the letters are also... The font, the letter font is uh, quite small. Ooh, looks like about 800 pages, that, <laughs> yeah. when I le when I leafed to the back Wait. there. But it uh, looks all good stuff. Yeah, it's really it, it's it's really intriguing. It's really interesting. And it's not uh, – no, I, I, I was uh, – that is a great book. Yeah, Easy read as well. Okay. And any other books you'd recommend? Yeah, another one is uh, Hunter Killers by uh, Ian uh, Ballantyne. And that's um, – 
a bit about the same the same stories the same idea that I had with my book uh, these are these are a lot of uh, uh, this is also of course about the Royal Navy submarine service but also with another a lot of news news new stories and new um, uh, adventures and that I didn't know about uh so I really uh, recommend those uh, those books. Yeah, that one that one looks good. It's subtitled "The Dramatic Untold Story of the Royal Navy's Most Secret Service." So I will be adding links to all of those books in the show notes. Are there any websites that you can recommend? There's obviously yours, which I can't remember the uh, the link for. Well, the the, the name is uh, marineschepen.nl. I'm so glad you said that, not me. Um, I'll add links to that in but, the uh, show notes. Yeah, but well. I started also with my uh, English language uh, website. It's still a bit uh, hard, but it's uh, naviesworldwide.com. Um, and that's that's mostly about uh, the current topics about submarines and the Dutch submarine replacement and the new mine hunt, uh, mine countermeasure vessels. So Right, so it keeps going. The story keeps going. The then. story keeps going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on Cold War Conversations. I hope you've you've enjoyed the ride. It hasn't been too bad. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Well, that's it for this episode. However, there's photos of my visit to the Royal Netherlands Navy Museum at Den Helder and links to Jamie's book in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 70. Don't forget, you can support us and get a Cold War Conversations coaster at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Cold War pod. If you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page or with your favorite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, at Cold War Pod, and Instagram, at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.